0: Florida leads the nation in anti-Black education policy, and charter schools have their day in court, and by that I mean the Supreme Court, today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America where we deep dive into the top headlines and the stories that aren't being covered, looking to shed some light on the dark forces that are affecting our schools and our democracy I'm our host, Chris Citizen-Stewart. I'm also the CEO of BrightBeam, a nonprofit network of activists fighting for educational opportunity and justice for every child. And as is the case every week, I'm here with my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South. Anyways, welcome folks. Glad you guys could make it with us again for this week. Want to say that right at the top that we have been getting really good feedback on our phone line and on our email. So I want to give you upfront that number. The phone number is 321-213-9171. The email is show at lostdebate.com. When you call or send us an email, realize that you are calling or emailing the fastest growing show on the Lost Debate Network. So there you go, Ravi. How are you doing, man?
1: Yeah, not only the fastest growing show on the Lost Debate Network, but I think one of the fastest growing education shows in the country. And I, I think the the audience emails and voicemails have been coming in fast and furious. And it's honestly one of my favorite parts of the day is hearing from folks. It's we truly have a diverse group of people in every possible. Way. We've got people who are practitioners in traditional schools, in charter schools, parents, grass tops people, grassroots people, people from across the ideological spectrum. I love that. So please keep sending in your questions, your thoughts, your suggestions. And in that respect, Chris, I guess we'll get right into it. No banter this week. Let's let's actually get to these voicemails. We we talked about. We actually led a segment with a uh, an email from uh, Carolina, who had uh, thoughts about ed tech essentially saying we need less ed tech in the classroom. And she sent us some follow on thoughts to that segment. And there are a few points in here, so we should tackle them one at a time. She says, first, I think there's a difference between kids using platforms designed for specific reading or math outcomes versus elementary schoolers using a computer to type their compositions. We don't hand first graders calculators and tell them to add. We teach them about place value, number sense, and give them manipulatives to learn mathematical concepts. I think the same should be true of writing. Kids should learn the mechanics of writing in the alphabet before they're given the shortcut of typing on a computer. I agree with her in spirit, but I I think of computers like the pen and the pad more than I think of them as a calculator now if we're giving students programs like Grammarly and spell check and things like that before they learn how to spell or they learn grammar, then I would agree with her, but I think the very act of typing I think of as a modern day version of giving kids a pad and a piece of paper and often it is a prerequisite to learning a lot of the fundamentals of writing it's just a, a series of tools to write not a supplement for it in the way that calculators might be but I, I agree with her in spirit
0: i don't know enough about teaching you know directly in a classroom to be able to to say much about this except for tools are tools. And I've said that in previous shows, I'll keep saying that. So I feel like she knows what she's talking about. So I'd agree with her. Her name is Carolina. uh, And I, I feel like I would agree with her because it sounds like she's talking with some authority and I don't know enough to disagree. But well, I will say this much. You just mentioned Grammarly. When you write in Grammarly and it pops up a thing and it says you're speaking in the passive voice, you have a dangling preposition or something like that there. And then it explains it to you. And then it tells you how you might do better or rewrite it or what not. That's all a tool. That all is helping you learn. It's not just handing you uh, a laptop and saying, have at her. It's actually giving you exploit. And you know what? A teacher would have to do that by pen anyways. If you turn in something written to a teacher, she would have to, or he would have to take a pen and say, this is a passive voice.
1: So you're saying I agree with her. And then you're disagreeing with her. You're you're such a politician. A- am I disagreeing though? Absolutely. And,
0: and uh, are we sure it's Carolina? Yeah. Yeah. I think in her email, she, she put pronounced Carolina.
1: Oh, my bad. Okay. I apologize, yeah, Carolina. Because her name
0: looks like Carolina, but she 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 was kind enough and helpful enough to know that it might be something that we would trip on, and she put it right in the email. Oh, well, thank you so much. And I don't know that I'm disagreeing with her. But you
1: are a politician. I just want to name that <laughs> you're talking out of both sides of your mouth here. You're How saying, so? oh, Yeah, she knows what she's talking about. And then you're saying, oh, a tool is a tool, and you're defending the tool.
0: She might be saying the same thing, though. She's saying... She's not against it. She just thinks there's some things we need to teach kids before we just hand them a computer and tell them have at her. And I kind of agree with that, except for I don't know if this is really disagreeing with her. The same thing she would do with a pen Grammarly can do with like you. Let's just put it this way. In the last show, you talked about how we could get a, a, a great superstar teacher to serve more kids, for instance. Can you imagine a teacher going one by one with papers and a pen? Versus doing a hundred of them with a tool. I'm
1: with you. I'm just honest with her that I see things differently. You, you're <laughs> you, pandering. So she also says, she says a couple of interesting things, just things I, you and I are going to agree with that you have to scaffold computer skills and that you know, she does acknowledge that sometimes video clips are a great way to, to share information. And she does say Kindle's rule. So you, you two are on the same page about that. mm
0: That's absolutely. Uh,
1: Okay, well, let's move on to another voicemail. This is from Rachel uh, from, uh, she's a 2017 Teach for America alumni. And let's play this clip.
2: Hi, Chris and Ravi. My name is Rachel, and I am a 2017 Teach for America alum. Um, I taught in the California Capital Valley region, which is now defunct. But I taught primarily in Sacramento So it's really interesting. Obviously, I left teaching, but teaching hasn't left me because I still stay up to date with education news and I listen to your podcast. Uh, Your commentary on Teach for America in the past couple of episodes has been really interesting. I'm curious about what you will all have to say about teacher burnout specifically within charter schools. I am coming from a place where... I really believed in charter school practices and still do, and I think about how important it is to hold high expectations for students as well as teachers, and I held myself to those expectations for many years, and I just did not see it as something that I could continue to do sustainably. I know that, I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well, the kind of charter school pipeline of having a solid teacher who shows growth and works with kids who show growth as well in their learning and they produce strong test scores. And the pipeline the charter school creates where that teacher is then promoted to maybe a coaching position or a dean position or maybe even an AP position where they're making more, but honestly, they're probably decreasing their workload in many ways because Um, They're not doing like the in the weeds work of the teacher. I don't know. I, you know, I worked as a teacher for a couple of years and really like value all of that specific work of grading exit flips every night and um, revising lesson plans based off of data and calling families every night. That's not necessarily something a coach is doing all the time. So yeah, I guess curious to hear your thoughts about burnouts and kind of that pipeline of um, professionalism within charter schools.
0: Okay, so it looks like Rachel is giving us some feedback on the previous show that we did around Teach for America, and she's saying that we should discuss the burnout of TFA teachers and the charter school pipeline, where good teachers are promoted out of the classroom and they move on to, you know, bigger and better things, or, you know, maybe not bigger and better than the classroom, but other things, and that there is real burnout in the core and uh, I don't know what to say about this, except to say that I, I imagine that, that that's absolutely true. It's been a hazard of the business for a long time. I mean, it's part of the model that you are putting people through a pretty regular rigorous situation for these you know, terms of duty that they do in TFA. And it's kind of known. It's like a part of like, you go in the Peace Corps, you don't come out the other side of the Peace Corps and say, oh man, my time in Kenya was so stressful. You say like, I kind of knew going in, hopefully you knew going in and hopefully TFA prepares people for that. I don't know. And Ravi, you would know better than I would if there was ever like a real earnest plan for trying to think beyond two years for TFA and for the LUM or whether, because to me it was just the business model was meant to be like Peace Corps and hard.
1: (laughs) I think it, you know, I was in the middle of all this and it did my fair share of contributing to the burnout and to the the other phenomenon that she describes, which is promoting people fast out of the classroom. And I've mixed feelings even about my own practices, but I would say Teach for America in the beginning did a lot more explicit messaging that this is going to be really hard and almost like that's part of the challenge and what makes it exciting to use my metaphor when we talked about Teach for right? like that it's almost like a military level of commitment. Like you're young, you're going to go to hard hit places and you're just going to put in all your time. I prefer that world to the world that I was in, which is this interstitial world, which was... They had, they kind of were in between at the time I left running schools where they were confused Teach for America, at least where I was about which of the two worlds they wanted to be in. Do they want to be in a sustainability? We're keeping people in the classroom, you know, long-term, or are we really viewing this almost as like a military commitment where they're, you know, it's explicit that this level of intensity is going to be a few years. So I think. I'm not sure where Teach for America is now. I suspect based on what I've seen from that, they're more on the sustainability front. If I were running Teach for America, I would continue to make it what it was in the beginning in the sense of just being like, this is going to be really hard. You're young, you're privileged. We're going to send you to hard places. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be some of the hardest years of your life. And once you're finished with your Teach for America commitment, then we can start talking about sustainability. But while you're in it, for the first few years, it's not gonna be sustainable. We don't talk about being a a medical resident for brain surgery as being sustainable. We don't talk about being in the military as sustainable. We don't talk about the Peace Corps as being sustainable. And we're not gonna talk about closing the achievement gap for Teach for America as being sustainable. She does talk about this quick promotion out of schools. I think this is real. I think one of my many regrets in running schools is that we grew too fast. I think there's a lot of pressure on schools to grow fast. It's it's well-placed pressure because there's a lot of urgency around reaching more kids, but I think we do tend to promote people out of the classroom sometimes too soon. I certainly did and lost some really good teachers because of that and then there, there becomes this expectation that after a few years of strong teaching that that everybody should be a, a principal or a director of curriculum when they're 28 or 26 or whatever and Although I do think people in their 20s can be great leaders. I don't think all people in their 20s who are great teachers should be great leaders. And we need to do more to pay people, incentivize them to be in the classroom as long as possible when they're doing really well. So she does raise some really important points.
0: All right. So I have a hot take. Then we can move on to the next caller. But here's my hot take. If you are listening to this and you go to your Googles right now, go to the Googles and look this up. It's probably true. I think that I read that police officers have a maximum IQ that they want for police officers. So when they recruit or whatnot, there's actually a ceiling of the IQ that they want. And they will disregard. People. Okay, yeah.
1: I want to be on record here as a as a neighbor to many police officers in Staten Island that I am skeptical of said data. So I'm looking for. <laughs> I I find it hard to believe, and, and obviously, police officers not a monolith. It's a local thing. So yeah, maybe there's some crazy town out there that that has such a, a rule. But I'm gonna I'm gonna call BS on that and say that's got to be the exception, not the rule. But you 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 prove me wrong, Chris.
0: Okay. Well, listen, I, I will tell people to go and Google it. And I, I think you'll find something. I don't know uh, if it's true or not, but there is something oh here. Oh my from- God. I'm Alex Jones over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right.
1: Well, okay. Uh right. One final, one final note. We oh got Let me
0: finish this. I got to, fi- I got to say this. All right.
1: Oh Lord. It was more, there's more to this. So yes.
0: Cause, cause it, first of all, for police officers, there's supposed to be this maximum. If you don't find it, you don't find it. Call me on it later, next show. But when it comes to TFA teachers, actually, the idea was always to go for uh, very high IQ, super bright, overachieving people and put them into tough circumstances. And the idea is if you put super bright people into tough circumstances, they have more problem solving skills and more cognitive ability to cut through some things that maybe lower performing individuals might not be able to handle. If that was the start of your business model, and at some point you start lowering the bar, for who you're looking for in terms of recruits. It's going to affect that theory of change, right? Like if your initial goal, and first of all, that's going to come with maybe super bright people only want to do it for two years. So they're going to want to get promoted out, or they're going to have plans all along to do something else, but at least you get that two years out of them in the Delta, or two years out of them in some school in Alabama somewhere that would never have that extent of that talent, or you know what I mean? So So deal with the fact that you're going to have super bright people, they're going to come in, they're going to be able to solve problems faster and learn things quicker and learn from their mistakes faster than others. And then they're going to be gone. Because there's things in life that they want to do. There's other things that they want to do in life. But if that's your theory of change, and then you start lowering the bar for who you're letting through that door, that through your change doesn't work anymore. Anyways, hot take.
1: All right. Well, okay. Our producer, Tommy, has actually provided us with some background here. So we're going to do a very first, which is a real-time fact check. And it looks like there's at least something to what you're saying. Okay. A federal, this is from the New York Times, September 9th, but this is 1999. Uh, A federal judge dismissed a lawsuit by a man who was barred from the New London Police Force because he scored too high on an intelligence test. Okay. So New London in the 90s for sure, was doing what you're describing. So at least in one place, you're correct.
0: And you will find other, keep keep looking, you will find other variations of this exact same story.
1: Well, that seems easy to work around. You can just fail to, you know, answer some questions around. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one more thing. We have Joanna in D.C. who's suggesting an article from the 74. Uh, she comes from a, a school in D.C. and she says, this is in follow-on to my radical idea from last week about you know, sometimes grouping kids together and having larger classrooms with more teachers and being able to differentiate, pull kids. And she she found an article from the 74... titled in one giant classroom four teachers manage 135 kids and love it this is from an Arizona school and I love this article I, I don't love four teachers for 135 students I think that's too few but I mm-hmm. think they're they're operating under mm-hmm. some massive resource constraints there that hopefully get alleviated Arizona happens to be one of those states where you know we talk about local, the, you know, the story in New York City, for example, around resources is different than Arizona. Arizona is a state that is criminally underfunding their schools and underpaying their teachers. Uh, this school, they call it team teaching. I love that phrase, team teaching of kids. And there's a lot of good stuff in there, so we'll link to that. Thank you, Joanna, for the suggestion, and thank you for listening. Chris, what makes you mad this week?
0: Everything. <laughs> yeah, of what doesn't make me mad this week? But I'll jump right in and say the first thing is Florida. It's a eternal wellspring of discontent for me. There's a story that came out by ProPublica, continuing their really great coverage, their deep dives on issues. Shout out to ProPublica. Uh, what a great get, institution. You know, Man, they do a great job. Really, What they do better than anybody else is get really deep on a story rather than trying to spread out all over the place. Uh, They have a a story that came out this week called Muzzled by DeSantis, Critical Race Theory Professor cancel courses or modify their teaching. Primary in the story is a guy named Jonathan Cox. He's a professor at the University of Central Florida, and he faced a dilemma at the beginning of the school year. Either feed his family or drop the classes that he was going to teach because they might run afoul of Florida's Stop Woke Act laws. And those laws specifically have a clause in them that make it a crime basically to teach colorblindness has racial effects, has racial discriminatory byproducts to passing colorblind Laws, and it's specifically in the law, that you can't teach that. Uh, the law also prohibits divisive concepts and all the things that we have talked about on this show before. None of this is new. I could go really deep. On the Florida example, we have talked about this before, but these are the material consequences. That's what's new. It's like I was just waiting for the shoes to start dropping where professors start quitting or they stop teaching courses or they become afraid to say certain things out of fear. And this guy, Jonathan Cox, said, This law is as such that somebody who's not even going to your school to your college, could raise issue with something they heard that you taught. And you can end up, if you're untenured, which many more are now today, many more professors are today than there have ever been, you could lose your job. And you know, this guy's got a young baby at home. He teaches specifically, his scholarship is on race consciousness, race in society, how race plays out in systems. And these are all things that could get him called up. And he's one black person, one black professor of all the professors in a school without tenure. And nationally, we have less than 2% black male professors, and many of them have their scholarship and their expertise in the study of race. So for me, this is, it's just another another example of where the power is imbalanced for people of color in higher education and in schools and uh, parents of color and kids of color to be seen and heard and have our scholarship and have our stories be told within the major institutions that we pay pay taxes for it's almost as if these laws are passing as if we don't exist. And and I think it's a real problem. I will say this about the Stop Woke Act, there's a lot of information people can go down the rabbit hole on, but there it's not like it's not being challenged. There's a preliminary injunction that has been granted against the Individual Freedom Act, which is also called the Stop Woke Act in Florida's courts, and that is causing I think a problem for the governor there, for DeSantis on this. So it's not like it's it's not going to be challenged. It is going to be challenged. The American Association Of university professors and others are all challenging this law. But I'm seeing such weak pushback from some of my freedom of speech friends, some of my school choice friends, some of my, you know, Elon lovers and non cancellation people. And the left is just out of hand with their canceling of people. They're just so oddly silent about this big state called Florida where the governor is doing everything against what they say they're about
1: well I just want to remind you and our audience that when we left off last week, I said, I don't want Ron DeSantis uh, controlling my K-12 policy, and, and I'm consistent on that, Chris. So remember, we are talking about, this guy could be president.
0: Nobody Easy. does. Easily <laughs> Nobody does. could easily be president.
1: By the way, I don't want Joe Biden either. I, I don't think they're the same. I, I would rather have Joe Biden controlling my K-12 than DeSantis. I wouldn't want either, which is why I don't want consolidation of K-12 policy at the federal level. This is, this is Exhibit 1000. For that, I, I think that this is the kind of shenanigans you get when they consolidate their their control over K-12 policy.
0: But on this one, I disagree with that. By the way, yeah. But, well, okay, keep going. Well, this because is, this isn't a this isn't a matter of him. The system is fighting him back. This is this is an authoritarian takeover, and that can happen in any situation. The courts are fighting him back. the The rule of law is gonna is gonna kill him. The the rule of law yeah, is gonna it, get him. with so. some
1: help with some help from my people on the ground. My yeah. my thousand points of light to use my uh, <laughs> my Reaganite it. language here. <laughs> uh, but okay, the so on this front now where you and i are totally in agreement here is that this is a clear violation of the first amendment among the the parts of this act that you talked about is it prohibits teachers from making students feel guilty for past discrimination by members of their race this is clearly a violation of the first amendment. And I th- would imagine and hope that courts see it that way. There are seven states that have passed legislation aimed at restricting public colleges, teaching or training related to critical race theory. Now you can hold two ideas simultaneously. You don't have to have these views, but if you're trying to talk to your relatives on this or you are you have complicated views on some aspects of this curriculum, you can, you can both believe that some of these uh, pieces of curriculum are not what you would teach or how you would teach it and still believe that people have a right to teach it. Those two things are totally complementary, And the right wing tends to argue for that space when it suits their interests. And as you say, totally ignore it when it's inconvenient. In this case, it's inconvenient, right? Like you don't have to argue with, you know, cousin Sally or uncle Ron uh, to say that, Hey, I like, you need to agree with every aspect of this college professors' sociology lectures, you just have to argue that they, teaching in a public college, should not be muzzled in teaching what they view as the correct view on color blindness or history, et cetera. Like, we get into a dangerous territory when the government is telling college professors what they can teach and what they can't teach on a subject matter basis.
0: There's no two sides to this story. There's some things where we can both sides them, and then there's some things that just are what they are. And there's no two sides to rape. There's no two sides to the Holocaust. There's no two sides to slavery. There's one side of that. And there's no place in the United States where leftist or black people or people of color or LGBTQ people are fighting to make sure that colleges and K-12 schools teach nothing about the founding fathers being all white male landowners. We're not seeing anybody anywhere pass a law that says you can't teach the traditional stuff that they want on the right side of the fence. No one's outlawing anything. There's no state law anywhere in the United States that's being passed by everyone else besides the small kind of narrow group of white, straight male Christian evangelicals who are pushing for a complete whitewashing statewide and school district-wide of libraries, schools, and teaching in the classroom. So there are no two sides to that. There's their side, and then everybody else who's saying, no, 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 but our books should be in the libraries too. No, 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 our stories should be part of the canon too. No, 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 no. Like uh, our vision of what race and racism and how it's experienced by people should be part of, should be part of the world fund of knowledge so that kids aren't stupid. Right, they have a a, a world front knowledge. So I think like it's not incumbent on you, me, or any of us who are rational people. You're more to the left than I am.
1: Am I? I think sometimes you accuse me of being to the right of you. Sometimes. Uh, Well, I I I think I'm. I think I'm to the right and left to you on different issues. I'm encircling you. I've got you. I've got you (laughs) cornered. Is how I think of it.
0: Yeah. Well, that's terrible, but. (laughs) Uh, I'm for sure not a Democrat and I'm for sure not a leftist and, you know, I'm not a socialist and I'm none of those things. But what I am is somebody who wants to make sure that the right stays honest about what they, they say, what their declared values are. And DeSantis is a great example of how dishonest they are about their declared values. They are not about freedom of speech. They are not about the First Amendment. They are not about the Constitution. They're not about like a marketplace of ideas. They are not about like, you know, may the best ideas win and all of that stuff. They can't lay claim to any of that in, if you continue to have a Florida. Florida right. is the one big example of the biggest lie of their side of the fence. On all of that, can we add something to this? Because so we've already covered this territory. We've covered the territory about the book bans and about the kind of super hyper regressive whitewashing of history and these state laws. I've said many times, I don't care about any of this until you pass a law. Right. Same. Like as long as this is as long as we're just arguing, like, hey, fine, let's argue about it. Should we teach classical education or should we teach progressive education? Well, let me go a step you know? further. By the
1: way, oops, oh my mic is falling down. I'm getting so excited. Uh, let me go. Uh, <laughs> Let me go a step further and say, I imagine that there are some people on DeSantis' side where we'd have common ground in terms of the battle of ideas. For example, if we were arguing about white fragility and Robin D'Angelo's ideas or some of Kendi's ideas, as you and I have explored on this podcast, we have issues with those works. I certainly do. And if I were like sitting down with a teacher or professor and in good faith being like, hey... Let's talk about how you're teaching this. I I don't agree with how you're teaching this. I'm also, I come out of the Obama political school. That was the first campaign I worked on. I'm a mixed race. I don't like the term colorblind, but there are certain aspects of the the Obama ideology of trying to find common ground across race and, and get to a society that, you know, is more MLK and Gandhi than it is Malcolm X. I'm kind of on that. Sort of corner. These are all like really valid areas for people to find agreement and disagreement within the public square. But the minute, like, I'm with you. The minute you start telling people they may not make certain arguments, I'm not with you. Can't be with you.
0: Eventually, that will come for you. That same yeah. type of lawmaking will come. So whatever you hold dear, that'll eventually come back to you. This is why, as a libertarian, you don't ever practice that principle. You, it's a non-aggression on all sides. Like, if, if for me to be free. I have to be okay with what you're doing. Like for me to live my life, how the way I want to live it, I have to be okay with you. So we, ha- we got to get rid of this busy bodiness of wanting to tell people how they should live and what they should think.
1: Yeah. hall monitors.
0: Yeah. Like on every, everything. And you know, you and I, this is the funny thing. This is what started shifting some of my politics over the last couple of years. This culture war thing definitely did when I saw so many right-wing friends who, who actually started betraying their values on things that they said and were completely silent during the Trump era of when all this started shifting. And I expected them to to pipe up on some libertarian values. Straight up libertarian values would stop you from passing any of these laws. These laws like said that private companies couldn't teach things. Right. Any libertarian Who saw that and said nothing because they thought it was okay because they were down with Desantis and some other things? They betrayed their values, right? So I've had had these conversations
1: too. Yeah, sorry, I'm just
0: getting excited about this. I agree. I've had this problem. Well, let me let me say like. When you just said we have taken issue with Kendi and Robin DiAngelo, I used to savage them until my right-wing friends in that camp started proving them right. You have to be incredibly fragile to not even be able to tolerate a drag queen reading hour at a library. How fragile must you be to say, well, I oppose that so no one should do it. Even though I'm all about parent choice, no parent should have that choice. No, uh, uh, I'm all about freedom of, you know, expression and all that. But some books I don't want in the library, right? How fragile do you have to be to not understand that the world doesn't just revolve around you? You don't get to just say what no one else can read. And, you know, if you don't want to go to a drag show, don't go to a drag show. That's like the ultimate easy kind of fix.
1: Could I just add one thing to that, which is I've had the same conversations as you. I still take issue with Kendi and and D'Angelo and and I think they're still wrong, <laughs> but the the I've had I had so many allies in the education world in the South who are who are right wing who I still consider dear friends who have, have been really silent on a lot of the anti democratic stuff coming uh, from the right and and I spent a lot of time reminding them that when the people on the left were coming after them, mm-hmm. I was always the first person on their side. I was always fighting to be consistent and be like, you know what, I I may vote for Obama and the national school board members may vote for Obama, but they're wrong. They're being anti-democratic themselves and they're bad for kids. And so I'll show up. I don't care if you're a Republican or not. I'm going to show up with you and lock arms with you. And there's not a person in the South who I worked with who wouldn't say that I was with them hundred percent of the time when truth was on their side. And mm-hmm. I happen to agree that when you saw all this January 6th bullshit and misinformation and all that, people just went silent. And then they'll be like, well, and then they try to imply that people like us are like, Uh, somehow not doing enough to quote unquote police our side, which I do think it's a false equivalence, but I'm like, Oh, what? Like starting a podcasting company that employs Republicans. And that has an entire series called the regressives that calls out democratic nonsense or on podcasts like this repeatedly coming back to, you know, attack ideas like Kendi's when we think that they're wrong. Like, I'm sorry, like we've been fairly consistent in calling out bullshit no matter what side it's on. But the equation, we're not balancing out the two sides artificially here. There's no both sizing of this. They're not equal. Like sometimes one side is just more wrong than the other. And some people's brains explode when you try to explain that
0: to them. If, if Louis Farrakhan would have called for thousands of black men to sack the Capitol And they would have ran through the Capitol smoking joints and rubbing feces on the wall and calling for Nancy Pelosi and acting as if they were going to hurt people and had killed multiple police officers. As a black man... In the United States, I'd be the first to jump out there and say this is ac- absolute BS. Nobody should support this. We shouldn't be silent about this. There should be no kind of like hemming and hawing about what this is. We should. We definitely should not call them patriots or, you know, honorable in any way, shape or form or whatnot. And if anybody did, on my side, anywhere on my side, whatever my side is, if anybody did that, Chris Stewart is such an independent that I don't care who you are. Malcolm X said this. you just raised his name. Malcolm X said, basically, you know, I'm for truth, no matter who says it. I'm for justice, no matter who it's for. Right. That could be whether it's for the libertarians, the Democrats, the Republicans, wrong is wrong and right is right. And we have a lot of people that were friends of ours who actually lost their gene to call things wrong. Whatever gene it is that's responsible for people just saying, nope, that's wrong, and I'm going to say it publicly. I know people literally who have told me privately that they would get kicked out of the think tanks that they're in if they actually ever publicly said that was wrong, a thing was wrong, right? They literally would lose their seat in some very well-known think tanks in the United States as reputable conservatives, as people who are reputable. But let me, let me jump to this one last point, because I think that's where we are right now. There are, no, there are no black people that are trying to pass laws to say that we can't teach white history. There are no uh, LGBTQ people who are saying that we can't teach cis, hetero, straight kind of normative uh, history. They're all asking to be included. That's all they're asking for. And when they do, the moment any of those people step up and try and pass laws like that to do that, to stop my kids, from learning uh, what I want them to learn, then we'll have a problem. Until then, I'll just call the group of people out who are supposed to be called out for it. I'll say this about Florida, because there's nothing. another interesting thing that was forwarded is this week about Florida. They're not doing as well academically as people like to make them out to be. The Florida miracle. The Florida miracle is supposed to be that they have more school choice than anywhere in the country. They're sitting on something like a billion dollars of school choice funds of kids being able to get kids into any kind of school that parents want to get their kids into. And they're the biggest marketplace of school choice. And for years, when Governor Jeb Bush was there and in control, they did have an amazing ascension in their old numbers. Like what the, where they were, when he came in as governor, they were the armpit of America in education. And when he left that role in Florida, they had something like a 300% increase in black students actually passing the AP exam and kids of color passing, not just taking it, but passing. Fourth grade reading scores and math scores and everything went up. Uh, they put a lot of focus on reading and early interventions, and they had lots of uh, a portfolio of policies beyond school choice working for them. But just recently, a study comes out from Stanford University, says that uh, Florida has the worst learning rate in the country with students uh, learning 12% less each year from third to eighth grade compared to the national averages for 2009 to 2018, right? That's the period that they studied. And really what lagged is the amount of progress that students make between fourth and eighth grade. This placed them damn near last in the country. And, and who was at the front of that? Places like Massachusetts, right? Places that are not very reform friendly. And even when they do have reforms, they put real, they stifle them or whatnot. They're kind of the opposite of Florida. So I just want to put that, I don't know if you have anything to say about that, but you know, in reform world, lots of our friends love Florida to death. Sometimes we have to be a little bit more honest.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's an indictment of reform, because I think there's tons of places that did embrace ref- like some of the central tenets of reform, like DC. We talked about Mississippi, for example, Tennessee, that over at various points saw tremendous growth on NAEP and others on other measures. So I, f- I find it more complicated. I think their particular brand of reform needs to be examined because it's not you know not all reform is the same. So for example, what DC did and what Florida did are not not alike, right? They're they're yeah. using different tools, like. Florida's more voucher, way more unregulated charter schools, for profit charter schools, where I'm a believer in a slightly more scrutinized system where we're we're providing more school choice, but we're asking more of the institutions that receive charters and even in cases of vouchers, which I'm very much willing to consider, we need to ask certain things of those schools that prov- mm-hmm. that provide the, that provide uh, services, which is actually a good transition to our next story, which is what's making us think. We talk about charter schools, right? These are schools that are run independent of school districts. They're usually nonprofit institutions by and large. You know there are states like Florida, Arizona, Michigan that have for-profit charter schools Ohio. But by and large, they're nonprofit institutions. They serve more than three point seven million kids in seventy eight hundred schools in forty five states in the District of Columbia, and they receive public funds. and, for a long time now, we've been in this back and forth are, are these public institutions or are they something else? And there's a critical case going before the Supreme Court right now out of Leland, North Carolina. There's a school called Charter Day School, which enrolls students from K through eighth grade. And it emphasizes what it calls traditional values. And it has a dress code. And that dress code has been under scrutiny because in part, it it requires uh, girls to wear skirts or skorts a word that I hate saying for some reason, and <laughs> and uh, the lower court ruled that this is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, and the Supreme Court is now taking up this case, and as of today, fresh off the presses, have asked the U.S. Solicitor General to weigh in with its opinion. It seems like the court is going to rule on this case it has tremendous implications beyond the question of whether kids wear dress codes this has you know has ind- implications on the independence of charter schools chris i'm genuinely Curious as to where you come out of this. I can see you going either way. What's your view on this?
0: So let's start with a couple things. First of all, the article that people should go read, it's an opinion piece by George Will in the Washington Post called How the Supreme Court Can Protect Charter Schools from Suffocating Litigation. I've always thought that George Will is like one of the best that there is, like when it comes to writing. Like I've thought this for maybe 20, 30 years. Like the guy is just amazing in terms of his level of clarity. I think he's dead wrong on what he's pushing for here. And I think this is where Republicans are really going to ruin. They, they they're ruining too much and you know we are a non-partisan show and on a non-partisan network but i will say this much he's making a couple of claims here like one of them is that state funding is insufficient to transform an entity into a state actor which is a fancy way of just saying it's under argument it's like being argued whether or not charter schools are public entities that should be held to the same kind of public standards for civil rights for student protections and those things and it's almost as if they're starting to push for on their side of the fence a charter a version of charters that is quasi private and not public and not actually because of that subject to the same kind of you know laws as, as other public schools that would be detrimental for charter schooling in in the United States as a form of public school choice in every state if you look at the state charter laws they literally expressly say these are public schools that they fill in the blank with some other things, but they say charter, that charters are public. And the left has been trying for years to make them private. The, le- the left has been trying the, – the unionist anti-charter left has been for years trying to make charter schools quasi-private. And here he is helping them and he's doing it in service of a school. This is what's interesting about this particular school, traditional values, classical education, all the stuff that rings all the bells. It's like the G spot of the right, um, all those things. And that's why we should, you know, make sure that they don't have to you know, abide by state laws. This is in the same state that denied a school a couple of years ago, a charter school, a charter because they were going to do a Native American curriculum. Uh, the school was called Old Mainstream Academy. It was a proposed charter school that aims to serve the Native American students of Robeson County. The stated reason that they were rejected, the cur- curriculum is too indigenous, too activist, and not inclusive enough. So here we are fighting for a school that wants to make girls wear skirts. But in the same place, you couldn't get a charter for a school that was too indigenous, blah, 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 blah. And that just unwinds the whole right-wing argument, I think, right there. They should just stay out of chartering for a while. They should just go to private school choice and let the rest of us professionals handle the public school choice stuff.
1: Well. Here's my problem with, with what's going on. So what he's saying in this piece, I agree with more of what he's saying than you do. Because he's he's saying that state funding is insufficient to transform an entity into a state actor. He's saying this is what the courts have long said. And I know this from personal experience. And we know this, right? Like if you're a a nonprofit museum and you receive state funding, you're not a public entity. We all know that. We all accept that, including, you know, tons of private institutions receive state funding in the pandemic basically every company in America received funding from the federal government. So we we know that to be true. Now I know from personal experience, I was sued. My schools were sued under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. <laughs> what? Federal law. Yeah, a federal <laughs> law. This was cooked up by all the, the the nonsense people on the school board and unions in Tennessee who were basically trying to kill our schools. And they sued us for millions and millions of dollars under this draconian statute that says that if you text people without their permission, each text message you send per <clears> person... <throat> is like something up to $500 per text per person. So you add that all up, and we're talking like $10 million, $20 million for us sending text messages to parents, offering them a free education at our schools. Now, what nobody disputed was that if we were the public school system, we were immune to suit because of qualified (coughs) immunity and other ways that (coughs) immunity breaks down. Now, we had to settle for seven figures. In that case, the insurance company paid for it because we're not a public institution. So what I would want is, hey, if, and and all the same people, the ravages of the world would have, you know, they were gleefully, to the extent they were aware, and to clarify, our producers asking me to clarify, you can't send texts in mass, but you can send them individually. Once again, if it was beyond dispute that if we were the public school citizen, we would have been immune from suit. And all these people, the anti-reformers were cheering on as they were suing us trying to take public dollars away from kids, mostly black kids in the South, right? So what I'm asking for is one world or the other, right? Either treat us like public institutions and give us all of the benefits that accrue from that and all of the obligations, or give us the freedom that we need. Now, I I would be careful, though, because if we're totally public institutions, I know we say we're public schools, but if we're totally public institutions, there are a lot of things like, obligations under collective bargaining agreements, et cetera, that we'd have to untangle, right? We don't want to be treated like the traditional district school that has all the same red tape as the district school. So I do think some in between world is inevitable.
0: This is where I have to like hard disagree because first of all, not all public institutions are the same way. This is why you have charters. Charters allow you to have different kinds of public things, so, maybe one library has X, and maybe another kind of library is defined by law to be something different. And it's given different levels of autonomy to do different things, but stays public. Like, not just, there isn't one kind of public entity. The, the legislature is required by law to be the one that defines what's public and what's not. And they define things, they've defined uh, charter schools as a form of public school, a version of public school. And it's a form that gets X that is different from a traditional district school that is required to do why just like magnet schools get some you know freedom to do completely different curriculum and in some cases throughout all of the correct uh, collective bargaining and start their own kind of like site-based unions and things like that a magnet school is still completely public right if we allow This conversion of the idea of the the charter school to a quasi-private type of school, we have lost like a 25-year battle for the soul of, of chartering as a public school option. And the left and the right will cheer. The right will cheer because they can set up these little clan academies like they want to do in North Carolina. And the left will cheer because they know from that point forward, we will never have a leg to stand on when we call these public schools. And then they can start whittling away at the private dollars that go to these schools. We've been fighting this battle for a long time to keep them public and make sure that it's very explicit. You get autonomy for accountability. You are public, but you get these kind of, by law, you get these kind of freedoms to do other things. Discrimination isn't one of those freedoms, though. And it should never be. Like, the the author of the beginning laws for charter schools, who I know, actually... Fought fiercely in the beginning to make sure that that would always be true with charter schools. That they would always there would only be a handful of things that they would always have to do. Respecting civil rights law would be one of them.
1: Uh, but then, okay, let's let's get to this. Like, I do think this is hairy, right? Like, I, I I'm not sure that a school requiring uniforms is inherently discriminatory, but. I do know that when I read this school's description of its own policy, like the chivalry and the <laughs> yes. fragility and all that kind of stuff, certainly doesn't speak to me. Mm-hmm. But I think like you've got to, I don't live in North Carolina. Like, I, what, what a, a school that gets chartered, for example, in a small town in North Carolina might not meet my tastes. And part of what I, maybe I'm too radical in terms of the the, the options I would allow for kids is that, I would be totally fine with a state chartering schools, just like I would feel the same way about schools for vouchers, chartering schools that have different values than the ones I would want for kids. Like I actually think that that diversity is important, and if there are certain parents who want "quote unquote" traditional values and like uniforms as part of that traditional values, like Catholic schools provide, like most charter schools provide, uh, many charter schools provide. I'm not. I don't think that's some kind of constitutional violation. I I don't love the way the school describes its own policies, though. I have to be honest.
0: You know, I feel the same way about that. Like, you know, the, the particular, the school wouldn't be my flavor, but so what? Like I'm one parent and, you know, I've got one set of kids. It's three parents that are actually suing the school that they chose. They chose the school. Right. <laughs> they put their kids in it and then they decided to sue, which to me looks very political and very much like sabotage, intentional uh, parental for sabotage sure. of a school. It's again, it's my biggest problem with busybodiness. If it's the school's not for you, don't go there. Like right. like don't go and sue because you don't want to wear skirts, but I will say this much about it. What's really weird about this is have you ever seen a school that doesn't have a dress code policy? I haven't. As a matter of fact, we were just making fun over the weekend. I have a black principal who was sending me their school's one, and it included things that I had never heard of, like twerking shorts. No twerking shorts, no (laughs) blah, blah, blah. It had this long list of things. Uh, Something called coochie cutters was one of the things on the list. I'm like, what the hell are these things? How old am I that I don't know what these things are? But anyways, this was a, a dress code that was, you know, being circulated. But all schools do. Non offensive things on your t shirts. You know, you can't show your midriff in some schools. And these are public schools. Like, have you ever seen a school that, I guess this is my only point. Have you really ever seen a school that doesn't have a dress code of some sort?
1: I mean, I'm sure they exist, but I imagine most do have, yeah, dress codes. Yeah,
0: there's certain things Agreed. you can't wear to public schools. There's certain things you can't do in public schools. And if you're going to go suing every single time, well, you know, they wouldn't let me wear my Metallica t-shirt. Well, okay, cool. Sue. Do what you do. do what you got to do, man. But squirts, like this does seem like it, it's a bridge too far. Uh, you know, boys wear this and girls wear that, whatever. But anyways, I... I don't know where we're going to net out, I think, on um, on this thing around what the Supreme Court does with charter schools, except for my real worry is, and I'll just make it plain to end on, is I worry about losing this battle about charter schools being public schools. And I think if we lose that particular battle because there's some zealots on the right who want to protect squirts in a traditional school, they they might win the short-term battle on that, and they'll lose the longer-term war on us being able to have these alternative public schools. That's all these are. They're alternative independent public schools, an ordinary part of the larger portfolio of public schools. If we allow them to make them quasi-private, that will be the slippery slope to them losing funding and being easier to to sabotage.
1: So a question I have for you is like, what what would you put within the scope of autonomy of a charter school versus not? And I know you to be also a supporter of vouchers. Do you think that the schools receiving vouchers should receive the same? Would they Should they also be treated as government entities?
0: Well, I think that's this part about being treated as a government entity is not the part that like really is at issue here for me. What's at issue is charter schools just being public period by law But a school that gets like a Pell Grant, for instance, a college that gets a Pell Grant from a student doesn't suddenly become a charter school or suddenly become a government school just because they took a Pell Grant, right? So for vouchers, like if you're giving kids or families vouchers to go to a school of their choosing, there are strings you can attach to that, like schools that receive Pell Grants can't discriminate on the basis of sexual identity or things like that, but that doesn't, so no, to kind of answer your question, no, that doesn't make that school with a voucher, doesn't make that an entity, a state actor or state entity, but it does make them subject to some state strings in a way that a state entity would also have to like things around civil rights. If you're going to get public dollars, I don't care who you are. Like, you know, if you make cakes for a living in your bakery, if you get public dollars, you got to serve the public, right? Now, listen, that could be complicated because, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. You have women's colleges, right? Well, they very clearly discriminate against men, you know? Uh, you have HBCUs. Now, I don't think HBCUs discriminate. I don't think that's how they get their population, but still, you know, it's it's a historically black college. People could make these arguments. Anyways, my biggest problem. I think, is to call things what they are. Vouchers have one definition of their relationship with the public and the student and, the, and all that stuff. So do ESAs and so will magnet schools and contract alternatives. We never talk about them. Contract alternative schools, they all will have different rules. Anyways, the bottom line is that charter schools should be an ordinary part of uh, a number of options that are offered by district schools or public schools, I'm sorry, to the public, including magnets and open schools and contract alternatives and charters. And, and small groups of educators and parents and students should be able to uh, form together and create the type of schools that on a local level, they know that they need most for their particular populations. And we should support that. And districts should be open to learning from it when it happens. And I think you and I both know that everything I just said is sounds good, but it's wrapped up in so many politics because somebody always has something to lose when you allow people the freedom to do their own thing, right? There's always going to be somebody that loses. But the schools that you ran in Tennessee had every right to be there was a need for them locally. They were actually providing a service to the families that went to them, and they were actually the top scoring in the city. Why would anybody have a problem with something? When you, when I say top yeah, scoring on, for kids, yeah, go on, of say color, more, yeah. Like <laughs> well, listen, like what you did is th- this is this is what this is the key to allyship. I'm not an educator. I'm not. Ivy League. I'm not a person that put my smarts to figure out these problems. I'm a lifelong activist for human rights and for closing the gaps that have dogged African Americans for all of our history in this country. And that requires smart people to do things like smart things. So when I come across a city and I see schools that are outperforming Everybody else with the kids that everybody has written off as not being educatable, like not, you can't teach these kids because they're black and they're poor and whatnot. I think anybody who messes with that needs a slap to the head. Like you can't touch this, right? And then when I see that, how fashionable it is to touch it, to attack it, to try and end it. We have schools like the ones that you ran that were actually putting generations of kids ahead of the game, beat the system. The system is not stacked for you, but we can get you ahead of it. We can get you out because we're smart enough. We, we figured it out. Here's my, here's my point to make on this. I've seen schools like that close because of po- political stuff. So now there are cities and places where the type of schools that you ran don't exist anymore because of something really stupid, some technicality. Somebody caught them on the lawsuit you talked about earlier in this show. Having somebody literally sue you around text messages to, try to get millions of dollars out of your budget to try and like hamstring you for doing what? For trying to educate? Well, kids. if
1: I, I didn't have insurance, I would. We would have been closed. You would have yeah. been out
0: of the business. Yeah, it would have been done. Yeah, you would have closed down. Yeah. And then what happens to the kids that were that are worthy of a seat? that should have been in that school, getting that education. You talked on a previous show about students going on to do other things. And, you know, I know there's lots of educators listening to this who'll be able to relate to years later, you find out one of your students did something great or whatnot. That's the story we want to be able to tell as a good person, as a good citizen. Not we shut down a school that was making a a story like that possible. So that's where I'll end. I'll end on this is I'm not like a charter zealot as one of your local people used to call call all of us, oh, these are just charter zealots like we were religious about them. I just believe we need smart people starting up schools that actually give kids new opportunity that they haven't had. I'm a zealot for kids, zealot Zealot for for kids. And for closing the gaps, we have lots of unfinished business. We have lots of kids. There's so much human potential that we're missing. There, there's like, a, we're wasting, like whole groups of people were just wasting and watching them waste away. Find me a state, actually a whole state, anywhere in the United States that's really killing it with black kids. And I will show you a state that doesn't exist. It must be in another country. Uh, it's just not happening. Think about all of the Obamas that we're, we're passing over, the the Neil DeGrasses of the world or whatnot that we're passing over just because we can't find the, the talent guardians, the people who can go in and find the talent in those kids and help them be their best. Anyways, if you have watched or listened to the show for a period of time, you know that we are trying to grow the show and get more people to listen and to uh, participate with us. And it is working. We are starting to get more feedback and it is generally good. And I appreciate that. But one way that you can help us is to actually, number one, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please do subscribe to it. If you haven't written a review, please write a review and say great things about me and terrible things about Ravi. Uh, (laughs) And if you really, really, really want to be in our ear and give us some advice, please call us or shoot us an email. The phone number is 321-213-9171. The email is show at lostdebate.com. And you can send us an email if you're shy and you don't want to leave a voice message. We definitely will read them and we will listen to them and you will hear about them on future shows. Once again, as we say always, thank you so much for giving us your time for listening to The Citizen Stewart Show. We will see you on the next episode.